0: Hello, and welcome back to our bi-weekly podcast, Slow News. Today we'll be looking into the tensions between India and Pakistan that have been escalating since the middle of February. We'll mainly talk about Kashmir, which is a highly disputed region between India and Pakistan, also the most heavily militarized area in the world. The Indian-administered part of the region is normally called Jammu and Kashmir, whereas the Pakistan-administered region is called Kashmir. For simplicity today, we'll just talk about Kashmir in general. For the first time on Slow News also, we'll have a live discussion in our studio today. So we'll hear about the Pakistani perspective on the conflict from Tanqinat, who's from Pakistan, and Hannah, who's from India. Welcome to both of you.
1: By showing actually the latest satellite picture. <laughs> of... Slow down.
0: Before we dig into the slow part of our podcast, let's just have a brief recap of the hard news. On the 14th of February, a suicide car bomb killed 40 Indian paramilitaries in Kashmir, the region that is landlocked between India's northern border, Pakistan and China. The Pakistani militant group Jaish-e-Mohammad claimed responsibility for the bombing, and India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi blamed Pakistan for the attack and promised India a strong response. On the 19th of February, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan then appealed for talks with India and requested that the country provide evidence for the claims that Pakistan had been involved in the terror attack. A week later, India launched airstrikes against Pakistan, targeting what it claimed to be a terrorist training camp. Pakistan responded the following day by launching airstrikes on the Indian side of Kashmir. When Indian jets retaliated, Pakistan shot down two jets and captured an Indian pilot. On the 1st of March, the pilot was released and the Pakistani again appealed for talks with India. The following day, Indian and Pakistani soldiers targeted each other's posts and villages along the Kashmiri border, killing six civilians and two Pakistani troops. And last Friday, Pakistan launched a major crackdown on extremist groups, arresting and seizing assets linked to militants in response to the Kashmir attack in February. This is not the first time India and Pakistan have experienced tensions. In fact, the two countries have had several conflicts and territorial disputes since the partition of India by the British in 1947. In our podcast today, Michal will tell you about the historical relations between India and Pakistan and help you understand why Kashmir is such a disputed region. After that, Juliette will talk to our two guests, Hannah from India and Tamkinat from Pakistan, who will give you the perspective on the situation from both of their respective countries. After the discussion, Denitza will then tell you about why territorial disputes are so important to states nowadays in general. So, Michal, let's start. Why have there been so many tensions over Kashmir?
2: Thanks, Louise. Um, The Kashmir region has been under dispute since India and Pakistan came into being as two separate countries in 1947, when British colonial rule in India ended. The former British rulers partitioned India and Pakistan into what they called princely states, trying to separate the country along religious lines. The borders were sketched out by a British lawyer who had never been to India and who used old maps and census figures to draw the borders. Officially, the different states could choose which country they wanted to belong to, The area that is known today as Pakistan was inhabited mostly by a Muslim population and so became a separate country under the Muslim League, headed by Jinnah. While most of the people living in India were Hindus and formed their own state under Nehru, who was headed the Indian National Congress. But for some of the princely states, it wasn't clear whether they would belong to India or to Pakistan. One of these states was Kashmir, especially because it was inhabited both by a large Hindu and a large Muslim population. The state mainly had a Muslim population, but a Hindu ruler. While religious differences had not previously been problematic, the new borders posed a challenge to the ruler, who eventually decided to stay a neutral state. The Muslim League eventually sent forces to Kashmir, trying to provoke a decision over an area that was strategically significant to both India and to Pakistan. The ruler of Kashmir sought military assistance from India, leading to the first war between the two countries from forty-seven and 1948. When India got its first constitution in 1950, Kashmir was granted a large measure of independence. One of the reasons for that, that, was India's prime minister at the time, understood that Kashmir needed to be given special rights and he made it attractive to stay a part of India, especially because it was attractive to a large Muslim population to become a part of Pakistan. But today, many people in Kashmir don't really think that they have more autonomy than any of the other Indian states. And they have long wanted to become independent both from India and Pakistan. India and Pakistan fought over Kashmir again in 1965 and in 1971, 89 and 99. And both countries continue to claim the peace of land. Except for the conflict in 1971, which was a part of the liberation war in East Pakistan leading to the formation of Bangladesh, all these Indo-Pakistani conflicts were about Kashmir. The conflict has become even more complex by China's involvement, who also controls a small part of Kashmir. But that border dispute is a whole separate story.
0: But what is it that makes Kashmir such a wanted piece of land?
2: Well, Kashmir is landlocked between the northern part of India, the eastern border of Pakistan and western China. Indian as well as Pakistani interests were mostly political, but there were also other important issues at stake. For example, whoever got Kashmir also got access to vital strategic areas and a gateway to China. Kashmir also provided the traditional economic link between Central Asia and the Indian subcontinent. At the time, it provided contacts with three important neighbors, the Soviet Union, China and Afghanistan. Now the region makes up for a large part of the border between India and China. This importance also became evident in the multiple clashes Pakistan and India had in the area over time. So I think that if we want to better understand what's going on in Kashmir today, we have to keep in mind the cultural background of the area, as well as the geopolitical interests at stake and its long political history of conflict.
0: Thank you for that, Michal. Now that you know a bit more about why there have been so many tensions between India and Pakistan, our two guests will give you some more insights on the dispute from their respective home countries. Juliet, will you introduce them?
3: Yeah, for sure, Louise. Hi, everyone. So, yeah, we are now in the studio with Tamkinat from Pakistan. Hi, Tamkinat. Hi,
4: Juliet. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
3: And also, Hannah from India. Hi, Hannah.
1: Hi, Juliet. It's nice to be here.
3: So, first, do you want to react maybe to add something about what you heard before? Tammy?
4: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think Pakistan and India have had a very complicated relationship, and to really understand the conflict, we have to go beyond what it is and look at their history, which was very well explained by Luis and McCall when you look at it people from both countries really have no choice in how they feel and their sentiments because this hateful narrative this is fed to us since we are children through our biased history our politicians and the media it's especially the media even sports, you cannot imagine the way people feel during an india cricket, um, India-Pakistan cricket, india cricket match. It's ridiculous because when you come to think about it, Pakistan has more in common with India than it does with Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia. And that is precisely why this persisting conflict between the two is like a sibling rivalry that was originated at the time of the British in the subcontinent when we were both trying to fight for who was going to be their favorite. And to fuel future conflicts and prevent a southeastern bloc from forming, the British left Kashmir as a geopolitical strategy between India and Pakistan, and Kashmir is often called the bone of contention between the two. Hannah, do you agree also with that?
1: Yeah, I agree that Kashmir is in a very difficult situation right now. Like, the funny part is, if you talk to someone from Kashmir, they don't relate to India or Pakistan they consider themselves as an independent entity and they're like, we're caught in the crossfire and we don't like either one of the countries, like, we don't want to go anywhere. But then historically speaking, our so-called fight with Pakistan spreads across many levels. Since 47, we've been fighting for our territory, illegally occupied by Pakistan, apparently. As you know, um, Raja Hari Singh, this was back in the time of the independence, signed the instrument of accession to join India, not Pakistan. So not only did they illegally invade our territory, according to reports now, but they also want to wage proxy wars against India. And uh, because India keeps perceiving itself as such a great nation, not only did, um, they always knew that they couldn't, like Pakistan, couldn't fight face-to-face with India and win a war, so they use, used proxies like Jesh. And I believe, I believe our fight is not against the common citizens of Pakistan, it's a fight against terror and state actors who support them, the government and the ISI. And we're fighting now because Pakistan apparently harbors terrorists, trains them and unleashes them on us. Like India likes to be the victim in this part of the scenario. But we can't be blinded by like our great Prime Minister Modi's surgical strikes because it was just a response to the attack that happened recently. And Pakistan is considered as a haven for terrorists, and it's something that the international community also acknowledges because of the past, of course. And I mean, I think I speak for many people back home that we feel bad for Pakistan. We don't feel any enmity against them. And long ago, they used religion as a reason. And I come from Kerala, and we have the second most number of Muslims in India. And We don't have any issues based on religion now or, like, since the time I remember.
4: Like Hannah said, Pakistan has also had similar claims to India, that India has been occupying Kashmir illegally. Because even though the Maharaja of the princely state might have signed over Kashmir, the UN said that elections should be held so that people could decide, because the Maharaja being an individual did not hold the responsibility to sign over a whole nation to India. But these elections were never held. And that really makes us question whether these people really do want to be a part of India. And it's not that Pakistan is doing this or, you know, we're, we're um, we're capitalizing on terrorism and they're supporting it and sponsoring it. Pakistan does not want Kashmir for itself. And it it hasn't for a while. It wants Kashmir to have its own freedom for the people to have their basic fundamental rights. And We're, that's
3: what the people of Kashmir want,
4: exactly. right? Exactly. And, you know, there's not a lot of media coming out of Kashmir, which makes us question what how things are really like. And possibly things are actually worse than we can imagine. Because men are being tortured for no reason, women are being raped, and children are being blinded by these pellet guns which are used against protesters indiscriminately. And India enjoys a a complete impunity uh, with its army in Kashmir.
3: I think you, you had a particularly striking example of this, of what happened in April.
4: Um, yes, actually, uh, Kashmir is one of the most heavily militarized zones in the world. In the world, and over the last three decades, there have been there have been multiple cases of killings and disappearances. In 2016 itself, the Indian Express newspaper reported uh, 446 patients uh, which were harmed by pellet guns alone. And um, in April last year, there was a case of an ordinary man being tortured in Kashmir. He was uh, not a protester. He was actually just a shopkeeper and actually makes Kashmiri shawls. And he was an onlooker, which was then taken by the Indian Army, beaten, strapped with ropes to the front of a military vehicle, and paraded as a human shield. His name was Farooq Ahmed Dar. This torture was carried out by Major Lethal Gogoi, which happened to be filmed and found its way to the Internet. Major Gogoi was bestowed with official recognition and praise. Chief of Army staff awarded him with a commendation card for his sustained efforts in counter insurgency operations. And he received a hero's welcome in his home state in northeastern India. This year, a respected spokesman for India's ruling Bharatiya Janta Party, BJP, brought Farooq's brutalization back under the spotlight when a company owned by him started selling T-shirts depicting the infamous scene. Let me say this again. Clothing with a torture scene emblazoned on the front is being marketed by a politician from the ruling party of the world's largest democracy. The politician in question... Delhi BJP spokesperson, Tajinder, Paul Singh, Baga. This just goes on to show how much of an impact this Indian army can have on the people of Kashmir. These kinds of crimes have gone unnoticed before and are only coming into question because of social media.
3: Hannah, do you have something to say about this human rights crisis in Kashmir? Yes,
4: of course. As much as the media has given us
1: a very one-sided opinion on the issue in Kashmir, there have been many articles that have just slipped past about how Indian soldiers were being brutal with people in Kashmir. So when what we learn in like school about Kashmir is that they have a special status. The government there, like all the Indian states, it's, um, what do you call it, a dual democracy? We have a state government. We have state governments and a central government. So Kashmir, I mean Jammu and Kashmir as we call it, has a special status because it has its own constitution. All the people there are said to have dual citizenships and their residual power, that is their uh, um, decisions about defense and other important matters are in their own hands. Like where I come from in Kerala, if, if uh, we don't like the verdict of a case, we appeal to the Supreme Court because that's our central power. For Kashmiris, it's, it's with themselves. Because I think at that time, they really didn't know what to do with this territory over there. And India has a really bad relationship with all of its neighbours. Like she mentioned, if you watch a cricket match, you will see if India loses against Pakistan, like in Bangladesh, they were celebrating. And I don't know if they even made it to the finals or like anywhere close, but they were so happy because India lost. So it's like, what she said is right. So many articles have slipped by and it also... Um, talks about this glorification of the army in India. Like, if you are part of the NDA, the National Defence Academy, your life, you're like a celebrity. So many of them don't go to wars. I'm not saying that they don't do anything. Sacrificing your life for your people is a big deal. But like she said, like, anything any soldier does anywhere is glorified without, you know, a second look. Yeah, so I agree with the not the accusation the claim of the atrocities because it's true and we glorify our army and there's no doubt about that
3: but um there's also terrorist group against your army right can you talk about like who who are these people and what do they want
1: against our army
3: well there was this uh this attack against policemen
1: against um, indian policemen and right Paloma. yeah All of those are just like the residual attacks from the main problem that's going on between India and Pakistan. Because as far as I know, in local media, we don't have a particular name for this terrorist organization that we're fighting against. When these fights happen, they say that, oh yeah, we attacked the terrorists over there, we're not attacking civilians at all, we don't have anything against the civilians. And then, like, recently an article came out by Reuters who said that India did not attack... (laughs) there were no casualties there was like a building there and it's completely fine and there are no like there's no evidence for um, um like there's no evidence to show that bombs were like used in that area so this is all part of the larger plan of modi's election
4: campaign i'm sure as a self aware um political journalists, you can agree with the fact that the way that the media handled the situation in India was questionable, to say the least. Uh, falsified claims were made of India um, killing 300 militants by politicians, which was supported by news agencies. And I really think that it sends their own kind of message to the population, especially because this can be and is considered propaganda.
1: Yeah, it is. And We take so much pride in attacking our neighboring countries because it's like, it's the whole idea of the rise of hegemon. It's like we're fighting because our nations were built around the idea of a nation state. We like borders and grand armies. Like you guys know Bollywood, right? You know how dramatic we can get. It (laughs) fills us with pride and gives the government a stick which it uses in its diplomatic process. Both sides cannot be victors fighting, but they cannot back down because we have to save face.
4: But uh, then again, I feel like I feel like terrorism is a global issue that doesn't rectify blaming a whole other nation. Rather than promoting a possibility of war, maybe India should look at the core of the problem, which is the suppression of the Kashmir community. The Pulwama attack, while not justified at all, is a consequence of that problem and not the problem itself. If you look at it, Pakistan has been the most affected by terrorism. The attack on the army public school in December 2014 was the deadliest attack Pakistan has ever experienced. When six militants entered a school and killed 149 people indiscriminately, 132 of them were children aged between 8 to 18. From 2012 to 2015, Pakistan has been under a lot of pressure security-wise. There were bomb blasts happening almost every week in public places, visited by normal civilians. Markets, malls, streets, nowhere was safe. So we really know what that feels like, that constant terror, and Pakistanis strongly condemned the Pulwama attack. But the core of the problem remains the freedom of Kashmir. We're not an isolated community anymore that lives in a bubble. We are a globally connected community that is aware and can question and look beyond things. So let's try to see beyond the Paloma attacks. What is so bad in the Indian-occupied Kashmir that people are rebelling to the point that they don't even care about their lives anymore?
3: Yeah, and when you talk about uh, seeing beyond this attack, do you see maybe, Hannah, a link with the upcoming uh, elections in
1: India? Yes, a lot. Because more these government, um, I mean, I might be digressing a lot here because government doesn't have too much to be proud of. They demonetized our currency, killed a lot of people. There was a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger. They said our economy would grow, which we never saw. Maybe it grew a little, but that was like a backfire. But that's it. So now they need to use this. They need to use the strategy of um, pride, of us not backing down against a neighbor, because they seem to be a threat. The last uh, violent attack I could think of from Pakistan was the Mumbai terror attacks, where um, this hotel in Mumbai, in India, was attacked. And of course, the first name was Ah, oh, Pakistani terrorists. And I can't remember, to be honest, what the end of that was. But like she said, it's um, it's yeah, it's, we're not fighting terrorism by fighting Pakistan. No, not at all. If we, if we want to fight terrorism, there's the whole IS over there who we should be fighting. And we have extremist groups within the country as well. We have Naxalites who are against the government. But these people are portrayed by the media in a bad light. So if you're fighting terrorism, there's enough cleaning to do in the country, not outside. The fight with Pakistan is just about ego. There was an economist article published about how the Pakistan and India conflict now is just based on psychological reasons. It's not political. It's not religion. It's not welfare. It's not about Kashmir even. They are just caught in the crossfire.
4: I actually agree with that. Right now, it's just a game of Egos. Like nobody wants to back down, nobody wants to resolve the issue, which, ha- which has been persisting for almost 72 years. And um, even though the UN and uh, global powers like China and the U.S. Are, are saying internationally that India and Pakistan should talk, there's only so much that they can do. They can't make two nation states do something. It is up to Pakistan and India to resolve this issue and nobody else. And on saying that, I would also like to comment on the upcoming Indian elections in view of Kashmir. Because until June 2018, the Kashmir party in uh, Jammu and Kashmir was ruled by a coalition of the Hindu Nationalist Party, BJP, and uh, People's Democratic Party, PDP, which was formed in 2015. However, um, recently, the chief, uh, f- the former chief minister, Mebuba Mufti, claimed to form government by forming a grand alliance with two rival parties. However, um, the governor, Satyapal Malik, suddenly dissolved the assembly, and now Kashmir does not have representation in the upcoming elections.
1: Oh, wow, I was not aware of that, and it completely fits the picture, because Modi, like America, elected Trump. um, We were also fighting against a bigger evil when we elected Modi, because we had this family, um, the Gandhi family that was ruling for a long time. And then we elected this man, even though when he was a minister in a state, he killed a lot of people, which is a whole different story. I'm not going to get into right now. So he needs something to show the people to preserve his party. And the BJP, since they came to power, has done really, has made some really stupid rules like the beef ban, where they banned beef across the country and people were just pissed off. So, I mean, they don't have merits to show for a re-election except this now. And I swear there are so many ignorant people out there in India who believe this who think that, oh yeah, we're fighting against Pakistan, we're rising, Modi's government is going doing so great, so of course it's going to have a huge impact on the elections if we pull through. But the media has, like been scrutinising all of the actions of the government right now. And personally, like I wondered when this came up, like why can't India just give up Pakistan? We have enough money, we have enough resources, and we have more than enough people. But then it came to my knowledge that uh, Kashmir holds... Um, the source of a lot of water bodies so if we give up kashmir um, the whole of the water source that's the ganges the ganga will be given to pakistan and that's going to be trouble
4: um i think we can both agree that um we do not want another war and there is a possible solution to all of this and but when you say give away kashmir it's, the point is that Pakistan does not want Kashmir. Yeah. It wants it to have its own independence. So you can keep, keep Kashmir, just give them their rights. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, that part of the geopolitical side of it, even I don't understand. Because then again, we're not backing down from this fight because it, it's like a silly fight between, you know, kids now. It's like, we're not backing down because it would hurt our pride. Um, there are legitimate concerns as well. Us backing down would also set a dangerous precedent that a foreign nation can claim land. Okay, even though, like she said, they're not claiming it. But in this fight, it looks like either India gets it or Pakistan gets it. So, if that a foreign nation can claim land and we would back down after a while. Like, after a fight, we would just give up. So, the Red Dragon, China, would leap at such a proposition. So, that's... Another perspective for India out here, like the bigger threat of China and the fact that China's friends with Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, all of our neighbors who hate us.
4: I would say, thank God China is friends with Pakistan, (laughs) because if it wasn't, then uh, Pakistan would have been nuked into non-existence a a long while ago. But um, on on similar uh, political playgrounds, U.S. has a lot of inclination towards India, uh, especially under the administration of Trump. And if we look at the history, the war of 1971, when East Pakistan wanted to have its own independence it was supported by indian troops so it goes on to show that within history um these nations have gone with the statement the enemy of my enemy is my friend so this is like a political a a geopolitical strategy that these nations employ um and also uh to say the least uh because of these uh And especially because of these actions, India has also faced consequences when it banned the participation of two Pakistani sportsmen. It led to the International Olympic Committee uh, having suspended all Indian applications to host future events and urged international sports federations to not stage competitions in the country. So I feel like India is also feeling the heat for not responding to, um, to Pakistani suggestions for a talk
1: uh yeah i mean i seriously don't understand why we're not having peaceful talks with pakistan in all of these years like we haven't read about even a proposition for peace with pakistan and doesn't make sense and i mean maybe this can be like a fruit of my overthinking but china at the same time wouldn't want india and pakistan like if you look at it if we could make peace Mm -hmm. india pakistan bangladesh like just throw them in i mean (laughs) neighbors we could all become one nation and then we would definitely be at power china because we have the resources we have the people if we are peaceful
3: so according to you china is fueling the i mean china is not
1: fueling but they can i mean this works in their favor right Mm -hmm. that two great powers are fighting with each other when they don't have to like we don't even know why nobody even knows why it started with religion and that's just not the case anymore
3: Okay, I would just like to end this uh, discussion by talking about the the public opinion. Uh, It seems that no Indians, no Pakistanis want to go in in war, right? Um, Tamkinat, can you explain us the, the reaction on social media?
4: Um, I feel like people actually reacted a lot on uh, Twitter, and this is what made this conflict different than all the others in the past, because now people were changing the narrative, especially uh, when India started its airstrikes and Pakistan responded. People on Twitter uh, got together and uh, trended the hashtag, say no to war, both people from India and Pakistan. And um, when... um, the Pakistani forces were able to capture the Indian pilot, there was a huge outcry from both sides to hashtag bring back Abhinandan. And um, just to see the fact that Pakistanis were supporting that sentiment, according to the Geneva Convention, and uh, Indians were retweeting those sentiments, it really made you see that the people in both nations do not want a war, and this is all just politicization of a conflict that could have been avoided. Hanaj, do you
3: have the the
4: same feeling? Of course, but I see mixed reactions from people back
1: home because um, there are some people who still somehow seem to think, oh, they're Muslims. I don't get that. Because if you read, I mean, if you read the news for a day, you'll know it's not religion anymore. But, I mean, a large part of India is not as educated, so you can't really say much to that. But, so the common perspectives are these. So some people are asking for war on both sides who have no skin in the game. And there are some people, maybe like me, who think that we can have peace and sing Kumbaya and listen to Coke Studio together (laughs) at the LOC and decades of geopolitical strife will be erased immediately. But um, I guess it looks like that's not going to happen anytime soon.
4: I think that's a beautiful sentiment, and I wish it could come true. But the truth of uh, the problem is that a lot of the people in India are not educated, and this is exactly what's capitalized on by the politicians. It is so easy to rile people up and so easy to change their opinions. All it needs is a little propaganda. Yeah, I mean, we listen to our media
1: just straight up, like...
3: OK, so let's hope that after listening to our podcast and the peaceful conversation between you two, people re- will realize that it's maybe by talking and yeah, just being peaceful uh, and open to the conversation that things can get better. Thank you so much to you two. Tamkina, do you have something to say?
4: <laughs> um, I actually do, Juliet. Um I think that solving Kashmir would solve a lot of problems for India, too. Peace with Pakistan, Um, the end of the India-China proxy war, soft power global perception win. I would like to urge the people listening to Nazi Palvima, not see Pulwama, while not at all justified as an isolated incident, but a cry for help in the fight for freedom being waged for almost 72 years. Kashmiris deserve freedom, not because of religion or nation, but because of humanity. Everybody deserves the basic human right to live a normal life. In this conflict don't support Pakistan or India, support Kashmir, support freedom and support humanity.
3: Hannah,
1: final word. (laughs) Yes, I completely agree with what she said about Kashmir. Those people, more than anyone, deserve the right to a normal life. And, I mean, if I can reach out to people, I would just say that use this to go against the BJP, not for them. Because this clearly shows that they don't have good intentions in mind. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you all very much for your input. I think uh, we've had a very unique opportunity here today to hear from both someone from Pakistan and someone from India. So thank you very much to to both of you for that. And now um, we'll hear from Denitsa more generally about why territorial disputes are so important to states today. So Denitsa, over to you.
5: Thank you, Louise. So, yeah, why couldn't states simply take the moral high ground and give up their claims to disputed territory or just share it between themselves? Or in cases like Kashmir, where there's also a separatist party, why couldn't states respect people's right to self-determination and grant them their independence? Scholars have put forward various theories to explain why territory is such a non-negotiable for states. Usually it's argued that its value is either political or economic. States' economic interests would be things like any resources that might exist in the area. Political concerns might stem from perceived threat, a struggle for regional dominance, or worries about sovereignty and identity. All these views are very credible and might in different cases shed light on specific territorial disputes. However, today, we would like to take our analysis a step further. We'd like to propose another way of thinking about why portions of land are so important to states. Territorial disputes are important because of how we have come to think of and arrange the international system. This might seem self-evident and unworthy of pointing out, but in fact, it's pretty interesting. This is one of colonialism's many legacies. The end product, how we have come to normally think about states, what makes them legitimate, and modern identities. There are and have been different forms of statecraft and identity that have not been so reliant on territory as we normally think of it today. Modernity is centered around territory and most types of identities are territory based as well. Of course, even today we have nomads and hunter-gatherers that are frequently on the go, never fully settled in one place. Nomadic identities are much less bound to a sense of place than, say, those of sedentary people. Most of, if not all of, hunter-gatherers will find Western ideas of territory alien. They do not see land as an object that nations can possess or fight over, but rather as an animated entity that we exist alongside and within. But even nomadic and hunting indigenous people today have been forced to live within arbitrary borders and to be citizens of a given state. Colonialism has many legacies, but one that we rarely talk about is statecraft. At times in history, during contact with Europeans, other cultures have had to learn about the European concept of the state. It was a new idea that clashed with how they would think of statecraft. The famous anthropological paper, The Formation of the Concept of the Nation-State in Nepal, by Richard Burkhardt, clears the air. The historical kingdom of Nepal, the Gorkha Kingdom, came in contact with the British in the late 19th century. Back then, the British were already rulers of the Raj, the British Empire in India. But how the British understood their rule in India was very different to how the Gorkha rulers thought of their authority in Nepal. The Gorkha kings claimed sovereignty in two ways, by exercising ownership over their territories and by exercising ritual authority over the spiritual realm, or where the temples were. People did not think they had much to do with the king, apart from maybe living on his land that he could bless. And for his blessings, they would give him offerings. But aside from this, he did not have any authority over populations as such. And within this messy division of authority, he also had multiple countries called Dessa, where different people lived, each having a unique identity, common traditions, lore, and language, much like how we think of ethnic groups now. But what made this really strange was that these three domains, the king's land, the spiritual realm, and the different countries, each had their distinctive geographic boundaries. They did not overlap. The king's spiritual realm could cover, say, half of a country, but not the other half. These domains were dotted around the map like messy splashes of paints. The Gorka kingdom, as an entity, was not defined by one coherent border around it. Rather, its different dimensions, the kingly terrestrial one, the religious one, and the population's one, each had their own separate borders that did not align with one another. It might sound confusing at first, but to people who had been living this way for decades, in this system, it was not any stranger than the thought of a parliament would be to us today. Contact with the British, at the turn of the 19th century, introduced a very new conceptual vocabulary of the state. Having a powerful neighbor who is gradually invading your backyard, well, kind of forces you to get to know him more closely. The British were confused by the Nepalese arrangements. Why can't they simply have one land with a clear border, one population with it, and the king ruling over it all, they thought. And eventually, they made it happen. If you're interested in this stuff, I would strongly recommend reading the paper. But the point here is, the European notion of sovereignty relied heavily on the notion of land. As history shows today, European colonizers exported these imaginations to foreign lands. Ironically, once the colonized started asserting their independence from the colonizers, they had to think with the same conceptual vocabulary about sovereignty in order for their claims to be recognized as legitimate. Today, we think of states as containers, holding within themselves everything that is national. The population, its culture, the economy, politics. All these domains overlap neatly. They are stacked upon each other as the ingredients of a sandwich and contained within the state borders. You can see how territory becomes crucial in this form of statecraft, right? Because identity and legitimacy are premised upon their being borders. This type of state is unitary, in an anthropological sense, but segmentary states, like the Gorka Kingdom, have existed throughout history, and for them, disputed claims over some land in the periphery meant much less. Mm.
0: Thank you very much for those insights, Denita. It's significant to remember that borders imposed by the British colonial rule have influenced and continue to influence the tensions between India and Pakistan that we see today. Once we know that, the notion of, and the connection between borders, territory, statehood and control are very much a western notion that have been imposed on colonies, and it changes the way we see the world today and helps us understand how a lot of tensions have arisen over the past decades. With all of this in mind, it will now be interesting to observe how the tensions between India and Pakistan play out, especially in the light of the Indian elections next month. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you've enjoyed our podcast and that you come away with a better understanding of the tensions between India and Pakistan. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with more slow news, so don't forget to tune in. Thanks a lot.
1: By showing you actually the latest satellite picture.
0: No, of yeah. yeah. nah. nah. Nah.
1: Yeah. Nah. Slow down.